Ephesians chapter 4. We'll be considering this morning the second half of this chapter, the back end, verses 17 through 32. Have you ever been invited to a particular event, and upon arrival, you immediately get a lump in your throat? You look around, and you realize, oh, no. What I'm wearing completely is not going to work with the context that I just stepped in. Let's say you initially got word that there was some uh, black tie formal affair, and so you get your tuxedo or, or formal uh, dress on, and you walk in, and you realize there was a correction, and it was a Hawaiian luau. The embarrassment, right? We know, even on a social level, we know the importance of being appropriately dressed to fit the occasion. The Apostle Paul teaches us, as he has instructed the Ephesian believers, in what their attire ought to look like as those united to the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the wardrobe of the new man? And what is the clothing of this new identity in Christ? Indeed, there is an old style and there is a new style. Now, we're more acclimated to it today in our social media world when people share pictures of us from 10, 20, 30 years ago. But there's nothing like these old pictures to make us realize, oh yes, there is an old style and there is a new style. But for the Christian, it's not a matter so much of what materials cover our physical bodies, but rather what immaterial character traits mark our lives as the followers of Jesus. In no uncertain terms, the apostle decisively underscores the vices that must be put off, as well as the virtues that are to be put on. This work can and always must be accomplished through the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit of God, leading the Christian back into the the spiritual closet to get dressed in the clothing first given to him at the moment of his conversion, and are to be worn day after day as we display to the world our new life in Christ. Well, as we'll see this morning in our text, in Ephesians 4, 17 through 32, we can see the division here where Paul describes the moral contrast of the Gentile way of life in verses 17 through 24, before laying out these moral correctives, we might say, in verses 25 through 32 that flow from our union with Christ, and mark the beauty and the purity of life under the Lordship of Heaven's King. So before we walk through this passage together, let's ask the Lord's help. Father, would you answer the prayer that we've already sung, that you would open our eyes to see the glorious things in your Word that we desperately need if we're going to walk in faithfulness as your children. Father, may the the order of salvation not be reversed in any heart today. May we not go towards the proclivity of every human soul to try to, like karma, think in terms of I must do good and therefore I'll get good. 
But we know that the gospel flips that order and says we must first receive good, true goodness, true righteousness and holiness from the Father of all lights, the giver of every good gift, the giver of Christ who has atoned for our sins before we can ever have the wherewithal, the, the moorings, the stability to walk in a life that pleases you. May not a single one of us get confused on this significant order of our salvation and our sanctification. And may you be pleased as you hear our words and you observe our thoughts as we meditate on your counsel to us today. In Christ we pray. Amen. At the beginning of chapter 4, Paul writes, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So these verses stand upon the theology that Paul has unloaded in the first three chapters while setting the stage for what he still is going to unload in the following three chapters. So how are local congregations, how are Christian households supposed to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, of their calling? This is what Paul aims to address. And in verse 17, Paul returns to his use of the term walking to describe the the full-orbed concept of one's moral life. So we see Paul's moral contrast here in verses 17 through 24. The moral contrast of the new life set against the bleak backdrop of the Gentile existence, the Gentile mindset, the Gentile way of life. In this first paragraph, this stark contrast is on maximal display. I bet Paul writes with a strength that's brought, brought out nicely in the NIV's translation that says, Therefore, I tell you this, and I insist in the Lord that you no longer walk like the Gentiles walk. Paul's sober admonitions carry the authority of the Lord himself. I insist in the Lord, he says. Paul gets right after it as far as his description of the moral bankruptcy of the Gentile way of life. So we see this call to live distinct from the Gentiles in these first three verses. We read these phrases one after another describing this condition. He describes it as a a futility of the mind. So note how Paul goes on. Here in verse 17, he goes on to emphasize the the unique mental dimension of human estrangement from God. This phrase is reminiscent of how the book of Ecclesiastes describes the person who tries to live life outside of the fear of God. They live meaningless lives, futile in purpose and futile in any real satisfaction. Paul continues the description. They are darkened in their understanding. So the part of the person responsible for making life choices, this is, it's been darkened. It is darkened. Similar to Paul's words in Romans chapter 1. 
And if you're familiar with that passage, we could easily have read that as our Scripture reading this morning. Romans 1, you'll hear echoes of Paul's thinking as he continues to, to describe that downward spiral of the unregenerate heart. Paul continues, they are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. So this alienation from God should not be downplayed as if it's akin to someone just taking wrong directions and if they would have gotten the right information, they would have, they would have gotten to the right place. Just a mere lack of correct info. No, Paul lays the burden, the culpability, the moral culpability on unbelievers here. This is willful ignorance. This is an overmastering love for the darkness that no level of good instruction is going to break. This allegiance to the darkened understanding results in an alienation from the life of God in the soul of every man and woman. This alienation from God stems from a willful ignoring of God that arises from a deep hardness of heart. This inevitable outcome is a deadness of soul under the judgment of God that seeks to sail recklessly through life. The description continues in verse 19. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Whether you're playing a sport or using a tool over and over and over on, let's just say, an outdoor project, you know the reality of calluses that build up on our hands to really protect our hands. Calluses build up so we no longer feel the pain we did on day one. However, like pain to the body, Guilt and shame can be to the soul, warning us. Violating God's commands sounds an alarm in the conscience, but when silenced over and over and over again, a moral callousness builds up. And after this loss of sensitivity, no restraints are in place. So a plunging headlong towards whatever feels good is the inevitable route. So like Romans chapter 1, where Paul describes God finally delivering men and women over to their own lusts to commit whatever manner of shameless acts against one another, a similar idea is in play here. God giving men over to what they want in the first place. When sensitivity toward God is turned off, note this, when sensitivity towards God is turned off, there is invariably an insatiable lust for all manner of what displeases God that is turned on. The result is greediness. Not only for money per se, but a a greediness, an insatiable hunger to practice whatever satisfies, at least in the moment, every kind of impurity. Now, don't misunderstand this text and end up doubting Paul's words because you have in your mind some sort of drug-ridden frat house party scene. Now, certainly it encompasses that. 
but somehow we sort of always go to what reminds us of probably the, the easiest example. We all know very disciplined, socially conscious, well-meaning citizens who do not believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. The point isn't that people are as bad as they could be or even that all sins look the same. Rather, the point is all Gentile hearts are fundamentally the same, longing lustfully for more and more of what will never truly satisfy. Sin always has diminishing returns. What is exciting at a certain time is no longer exciting a few weeks or months later. It doesn't captivate, captivate like it once did. And this leads the unbelieving heart to a never-ending hunt for a golden calf that will finally quench our thirst. Now, if you're not a Christian here this morning, you might bristle at the thought of this being an accurate description of you. You may genuinely believe that you are not darkened, but rather you are enlightened in your understanding. You may believe that, that ignorance is not a fitting descriptor for you, but you are clear thinking both about yourself and about the world. Being callous, you might say, not me. No, I'm caring and compassionate. In fact, those Christians are the most callous and unloving of people that I've met. Sensuality, impurity, I mean, according to whose standard, really? The old school morality of some man named Jesus lived 2,000 years ago? Well, get with the times. I mean, as long as people feel respected and cared for, love is love. And the greater evil is to make people feel ashamed for what makes them happy. Some here may be bold enough to say something like that. Others, it may be more in the, the thought category. But to the person who might be in that position, if, if you're hearing this, before trying to dissuade or dismantle any, any of those statements, can I just simply invite you to go to school with me for a moment? You might say, don't you mean church? No, no, I mean school. Because that is where Paul goes next. And while he doesn't necessarily have you in mind, he's speaking to believers, I'd encourage you as if it were an open house. Come to the school of Christ for a moment. And sit on the sidelines and ask yourself this really important question. What would it be like if all these realities and all these truths were true for me? And just imagine what it could be like to enroll in the school of Christ for a moment. Let's continue reading. We see in verses 20 through 24, the call to live out your education in Christ. So after describing the bleak and the futile mental and moral life of the Gentiles, Paul begins verse 20, he says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. This is what you call a zinger by Paul. Nowhere else in the New Testament do we find a sentence formulated in this way. It is without parallel, one commentator writes. 
The phrase to learn a person appears nowhere else in the Greek Bible nor in any other pre-biblical Greek document. Because here, Christ himself is the content of the teaching. But that is not all. We continue reading in verse 21. Assuming, he says, that you have heard about him. Every true Christian must be a believer in the facts of who Jesus is and what he has done. His fulfillment of Israel's longings for one who would crush the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. One who would personify Isaiah's suffering servant. One who would bring about a kingly rule superior to even that of King David. One who would, whose perfect obedience to the Father's will, even up to the point of accepting the cup of divine wrath in the garden. This is the Christ who must be believed. Not piecemealed together to fit the parts we most identify with. The historical Jesus is himself the embodiment of all truth. And this truth is what liberates sinners from the despair and bondage of verses 17 through 19. But Paul goes on. Assuming that you have heard about him, he says, and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. So concerning the idea of being taught in him, John Stott astutely notes here, he says, that is to say, Jesus Christ, in addition to being the teacher and the teaching, was also the context, even the atmosphere within which the teaching was given. When Jesus Christ is at once the subject, the object, and the environment of the moral instruction being given, we may have confidence that it is truly Christian. This is the school of Christ. What an all-encompassing picture of learning Christ. Is this your story? Have you gone through the transforming education of Christ? Have you learned from Christ, about Christ, while enjoying union with and in Christ? Unbelieving friend, if you are still on the sidelines watching inquisitively, don't you long for this to be true of you? An immersive learning experience par excellence. Paul calls upon each and every Ephesian Christian to now live out this education. So what does it look like? Putting off the old self and putting on the new self. In verses 22 through 24, we see to learn Christ is to believe in the new creation that he alone makes possible. This results in an entirely new life that involves putting off our old humanity like a muddy or stained or a, a gross torn garment and putting on a clean clothing of a new humanity refashioned after God's own image. The obvious question is when does this take place? Well, the parallel passage that Bill read for us this morning in Colossians 3, specifically verses 8 through 10, is helpful as it front loads the long list of sins with the call to put them all away followed by seeing that you have put off the old self 
with its practices. John Stott again helpfully writes, he says, It is because we have already put off our old nature in that decisive act of repentance called conversion that we can logically be commanded to put away all the practices that belong to our old and rejected life. While the language may be slightly less clear or ordered as helpfully in Ephesians 4, I believe the same logic is to be understood in the text before us. All vestiges of our old identity outside Christ, all sinful traits, all demonstrations of rebellion to God's good counsel to us, all of this must be increasingly removed in the life of the Christian. Just as Paul prefers to use the verb walk, the descriptor, as synonymous with our lifestyle, as it helps us understand that one foot after another, moment by moment, imagery, he uses putting off and and putting on as an everyday analogy of the way every one of us gets up and gets dressed in the morning. The kind of of clothing we wear depends on the kind of role we are fulfilling. When we change our role, we change our dress. It only makes sense. I'm just as foolish, imagine for a moment, just as foolish as a prisoner who prefers wearing orange jumpsuits on a daily basis, months or years after being released from prison, a Christian ought to find it senseless to don the apparel of our old humanity. Christ has clothed us in the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. And this transformation happens daily as we come to embrace the ongoing renewal of our minds in the school of Christ. Paul now transitions in verse 25 to an even more practical guide of how this new humanity ought to look and how these new God-given clothes ought to be worn in the context of the community of the people of God. We see now in verses 25 through 32, these moral correctives, we might say, to the old life. And in this section that follows, we see not merely a list of vices to put off, but a parallel set of virtues to put on that serve as uh, correctives to the corruption of the old man. The school of Christ does not leave its students up in the clouds, but readies them for real world living. And in this sense, we may even consider this second paragraph as just the natural application of the sermon this morning. As you live out this Christ-centered education Paul tells us it ought to look like the following descriptions. We see in verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Jesus says in John chapter 8, describing Satan, he says he was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. 
So knowing this new life Paul speaks of means Satan is no longer our spiritual father. Rather, it is Christ who is the essence of all truth. And all falsehood and lying have no place in the life of the Christian. And why should it, really? Why should it? If the truth has set us free in Christ, why would falsehood better our situation? It doesn't, of course. But how we fall for the same old lies time and again. Note how the truth doesn't exist in a vacuum here. It is always to be the currency with which we communicate to our neighbor. In particular, our brothers and sisters who share membership in Christ's body. In the context of the church, do you speak truth with your neighbor? Is truth-telling the, the way, the, the language of the redeemed? That doesn't mean that you share every single thought that passes into your mind. For Proverbs says, that's what a fool does. <laughs> but in gentle rebuke, in confrontation, in admonishment, truth is essential. In offering praise and God-glorifying honoring of, of another brother or sister. And to avoid flattery, truth is essential. In discipleship, in evangelism, in shepherding, in parenting, and on and on, do we speak the truth in love as Paul has written just a few verses earlier in chapter 4, speaking the truth in love. We see in the next topic in verses 26 through 27, the next point of application, we see little bit behind for you there. From sinful anger to righteous anger. Verse 26 and 27 reads like an echo of Psalm 4.4. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and, do, and give no opportunity to the devil. Now we often define anger only by its sinful emotional outburst. But anger, at a more foundational level, uh, is different. As David Pallison notes in his book, Good and Angry, he says, anger at its core is the response of the heart saying, I'm against that. I'm against that. And we all get angry from time to time because we have an innate sense of justice. And the essential DNA of anger is expressing displeasure at wrong. So according to this definition, th should things such as abortion, murder, theft, rape, pornography, adultery, embezzlement, and on and on make you angry? Yes, it ought to. I'm against that. That is, that is unjust. Because we know God condemns these things and therefore we feel displeasure toward the wrong. However, anger is not just the intellectual verdict that happens in our minds. Anger is usually highly emotional. It's as if we're dealing with, with a, a nuclear power within us and we feel it when deep wrongs are committed in a way that hits close to home. 
Oftentimes, it is hard for us to discern when our anger is righteous indignation and when it is simply injured pride or malice or a spirit of revenge. Not sinning in those moments can be terribly difficult at times. As one writer notes, in order to prevent anger from degenerating into sin, a strict time limit is to be put on it. This would have been a proverbial saying. Now, I, I, I do think that in the realities of life, this proverbial, in the way we're to understand the generality of the book of Proverbs, rather than the concrete uh, forever and always uh, implications, I think there's a proverbial nature to what Paul is laying out here. That the setting of the sun is a physical cosmic reminder that as, as would have been a practice even under the Old Testament law, make sure you pay your hired hand before the sun goes down. Do what you ought to do quickly is the general truth that Paul is driving home. Other practices have the same time range in order to hasten the correct action. So here Paul uses this phrase really to warn us. So we don't nurse our wounds by brooding over them day after day after day. This only invites the devil, Paul writes, gives an opportunity for the devil to begin tempting us with his insidious lies. Deal promptly with wrongdoing. So reconciliation can happen as quickly as possible. Putting off sinful anger but still cultivating righteous anger, which means calibrating all of our strong I'm against that to make sure you better believe that God's against that too. Calibrating, making sure we are thinking justice terms the way God does. So cultivating righteous anger against all that God hates. This is an outflow of our new life in Christ. And verse 28 See Paul speak of the contrast between thievery to generosity. In verse 28, it reads, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with everyone in need. The book of Exodus enshrines the cardinal sin of stealing in the Ten Commandments, marking it out unique, as uniquely detestable for God's people. The warning is repeated several other times in the New Testament, even in a cultural context when stealing would have probably been commonplace in some ways, as day laborers or skilled tradesmen might be limited to working only certain seasons throughout the year, possibly, and without any kind of a, a welfare system, as we just sort of think in terms of today, they oftentimes resorted to stealing. I'm going to get what I want. If this was part of the way of life for any young Ephesian Christians, Paul wants them to know they must cease immediately. It is out of sync with the new man created in true righteousness and holiness. And the scheming and the plotting involved with, with thievery or robbery is to now be directed toward the ingenuity of productive labor, work with the hands, so they can, 
feel good about themselves only so they can secure a better future down the road and purchase all the toys they want just in the right way? That's not how Paul motivates. No. So they have something to share with everyone in need. So from stealing to sharing, from thievery to generosity, what a joy is ours when we learn the grace of sacrificial, costly sharing. Let's also not miss the call here to honorable work. Young men among us, if I could challenge you for a moment now, certainly applies generally to to everyone, but resist the cultural temptation towards sloth. Yes, I realize it is equally possible to worship work and to overwork, but I challenge you from an early age to learn the multiplication of blessings that flow from a Godward work ethic. And it is indeed tied to your new identity in Christ, the way that you think about your work. Paul continues in verses 29 through 30. He speaks of the contrast from foul-mouthed corruption to grace-giving speech. Verses 29 through 30 address this fourth topic. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We don't need to be reminded of the power of the tongue. Life and death are in the power of the tongue, Proverbs tells us. The tongue is an unruly force, James says. And although small, is able to control large things, ships and horses. It's so powerful it cannot be tamed. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. Now lying, as we've already observed, is obviously wrong. But corrupting talk, that's often wearing a more clever disguise. It flies under the radar in a far more subtle but equally destructive way. The adjective corrupting is used elsewhere in the New Testament to describe rotten fish or or decayed trees. Does our speech smell a bit fishy lately? Our present cultural moment means that we cannot bring up the topic of our speech without addressing our digital selves our online persona that for some is almost an alternate personality that is nearly unrecognizable compared to the person that we know in the flesh. You know some people like that? How? I never knew they had that in them. (laughs) Very different. Build up your fellow believers with your speech. Your posts online are not exempt from Paul's words here. Give others gracious words. Live out all that Proverbs envisions as providing moral skillfulness to know what words will fit certain occasions and what do not fit other occasions. Soften your conscience to the Holy Spirit grieving ability that your words can produce. Realize that. And just as Satan 
is not to be given a single foothold, so the Holy Spirit is not to be grieved. If we've learned anything from studying the early portion of Ephesians, it is that all the cosmic forces of darkness, as well as all the heavenly hosts and the heavenly community, are actively engaged in God's church-building enterprise. May our new life in Christ please the Spirit of God, not grieve Him, as He has so graciously sealed us for that day of redemption. So in all we say and all we post, May we give grace and avoid that corruption. In verses 31 and 32, we see a movement from bitter discord to Christ-centered forgiveness. Verse 31 rattles off six vices to put away. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Augustine is noted as having said, resentment or bitterness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Paul Paul is no doubt concerned with the effect of unresolved anger or the effect of corrupting speech in the church. Bitterness is deadly. Wrath and anger may well represent the the different sides of anger, as one uh, is the enraged outburst, wrath, and the other is sort of the slow festering of a perceived wrong that is held on to. Clamor involves a lack of restraint akin to brawling, and slander is, well, literally every ad we see on television these days. (laughs) Slander is a defaming of another for the purpose of self-glory and self-serving purposes. You have to broker in slander around election time, it would appear. And these things ought not to mark Christians. These things ought to be put away with all malice, evil, wicked intent, badness in every way. Verse 32 concludes the chapter, Be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Kindness is a quality that marks God's nature as much as anything else. Since we are in Christ, we can exhibit the same quality in our actions and in our speech. A tender heart is a sign that the life of God is at work in us. A Christian who has become hard-hearted toward everything in life is a sour ambassador for Christ. Yes, the, the world is broken. It's filled with horrors and sorrows. Not only, but, but unlike hard-hearted Gentiles, we have hope. Ethan mentioned this very deliberately in his prayer this morning. The difference We have hope. Our hearts can remain tender, not only to the promptings of God's Spirit, but to people in general. Even the people, especially the people of God. Pressing forward, hard-hearted people are always bad at forgiving because their entire mentality rests on always being able to whip out that record of wrongs that Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 13. 
towards a half dozen people, politicians, nosy neighbors, and of course, fellow church members that have rubbed them the wrong way. As Paul says, this is not the way you learned Christ. But what is our method for remedying hard-heartedness in believers? It is active remembrance of just how much we have been forgiven by God through Christ. Don't miss that. Christ's teaching, His presence, His enlivening work in the Christian, His forgiving mercy and grace, all of these are in view as Paul appeals to Jesus' completed work on the cross and His victory of sin and death through His resurrection. This is our grounds for hope. We'll talk a little bit further tonight as we remember how much we've been forgiven around the Lord's table. But as we conclude our thoughts, putting off and putting on, to many of you may be a familiar concept. Perhaps you've heard many lessons or even sermons referencing that simple phrase. Perhaps you've heard it referenced time and again in context for counseling or, or discipleship. Don't let it lose its scriptural force. For those less familiar, understand it rightly. Put on, put off is not merely Christian shorthand for now obey these commands and don't even think about breaking these commands. Put on, put off. Or, or do the right thing, don't do the wrong thing. This would leave us with a strong sense of moralism, even legalism, rule-keeping for all the wrong reasons. See the context that envelops all of Paul's words. Indeed, the entire book that he's laid out here. Your spirit-enabled ability to put away sin and to put on the very virtues that mark God Himself is because God has first in Christ put away sin's dominion over you through the cross. Consequently, our union with God's Son you have been gloriously robed in true righteousness and holiness. This is your new identity. And as people who have studied in the school of Christ, we've studied from Him, about Him, by Him, and even in the presence of Christ, mediated through His Spirit. We have learned Him. And by beholding Him, we love Him. This ongoing work of Christian growth can be unspeakably hard. It is discouraging at many times. But like Christian in the Pilgrim's Progress, the glories of our destination in the celestial city with God forever compel us to persevere in the strength that God provides. This is our hope. Indeed, this is our new identity in Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, draw the lost to Yourself. May all Gentile hearts this morning, even those projecting a Christian identity, 
but one that may be indeed empty, a whitewashed tomb, as you would say. We pray you would enliven their souls so that it might behold the glories of Christ. They might enroll in the school of Christ and learn from Him, about Him, and by Him that He is the Lord of all. And as Lord, He reigns. And He calls all His children to graciously walk in the new life that He provides. Encourage, build up, strengthen Your people today in these truths. May we be encouraged more and more to put on moment by moment the robes that we already have provided for us in Christ. We thank you for this and we trust you that you will work this good for us. In Christ's name, amen.